Okay, so uh, if you want to, you can turn, get ready in Genesis 42, 43. We're going to read some selective passages in there. I'm going to give you the big idea right off the bat. I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to try to hook you in the text. I'm not trying to find a need and hook you with it. I'm not going to uh, stick you to the text through some high drama or suspense in the text to get it. I'm just going to give you crystal clarity what the original historical meaning of the text is. So here's the question. What is the meaning of Joseph's reunion with his brothers? What is it? Those of you that have any experience in church, have been in church at all, you already know the answer to this. You've heard it in Sunday school. You've heard it in vacation Bible school. You've heard it from the pulpit. You might have heard it at summer camp or youth group. You could have heard it on the Christian radio or at Baylor University or Bible studies, popular books. Your favorite Bible teachers, you already know what the answer is. You know what the original meaning is to Joseph's reunion with his brothers. And then if you happen to have gotten married and now have kids, your kids are hearing the same teaching that's been going on for generations and generations. So I ask you, what is the original historical meaning of Joseph's reunion with his brothers? Y'all know the church's answer for decades has been forgiveness. Forgive like Joseph. So I've decided not to rock the boat this morning. I've decided not to break with church tradition. I've decided not to be that guy. So I'm not going to do that. So what I am going to do is that I'm going to, from this text, give you spiritual principles of forgiveness from this text to help you forgive like Joseph. That is the point. That's the sermon message. So these spiritual Techniques, these spiritual principles, should enable you to have a marriage God's way. It should enable you to parent God's way. It should enable you to resolve conflict God's way. It should enable churches to deal with church conflict God's way. It should enable us to have meaningful relationships God's way. It should help us with all conflict that's going on in the world today. Ideological, political, social, racial, gender, you name it. This passage is packed with the power and the enablement to make life better. So if you do this morning, if, if these, these principles are applied to your life, if you forgive like Joseph, you will have a heart like God. You will be spiritually successful. You will have meaningful relationships. Uh, you will resolve conflict biblically in your life. You will be an agent of change in the world. So, will you, will you forgive like Joseph this morning? Your spiritual health is at stake. Your marriage is at stake. Your family is at stake. Your friendships, your relationships are at stake. The church is at stake. The culture's at stake. The city of Waco's at stake. No pressure. We stand for the hearing of God's word. I'll be adding commentary with selected passages. We may or may not match up here, but we're going to plow ahead. Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? 
Uh, this, I love this. When I first read this, I went, oh, classic dad, right? Captain Obvious, you know. This is the dad going up to his 14-year-old daughter. Hey, Ani, do you know that your hair is purple? Right? This is Captain Obvious. It's like, we are starving. There's food over there. Boys, go get us some food, right? And so verse 2, and behold, I have heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy us grain for us there that we may live and not die. See that phrase, live and not die? That's a major theme. It happens over and over again, over and over again in the first five books of the Bible. It starts in Genesis 2 where God says, listen, Adam, live, not die. So the ten brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, both Jacob, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. Remember, these are the two biological brothers from Rachel, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to them. So you got to be wondering, Jacob, is he suspecting that his brothers, his sons, had something to do with Joseph's disappearance? Sure does feel that way, and it probably is what's going on. He knows his sons, right? Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was the land of Israel. So here it is. We knew it was going to happen. The family reunion is about ready to happen. Here's how it happens. We just didn't know how. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one, he was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And there it is, y'all. The 22-year-old dream happens. And if we read the whole text, you would see that what's going to happen is they are going to repeatedly fall on their faces on the ground before Joseph. Joseph's not commanding them. Joseph's not instructing them. Joseph's not saying, hey, man, this is the dream. Get on your face. They just do it. It's fascinating. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Remember the word brother was used a gazillion times while they were being unbrotherly to their brother Joseph. Remember that? They were treating him like a stranger. They were speaking roughly to him, not like a brother. Where do you come from, Joseph says. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And now Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about. This is so breathtaking because God acts, God works, God answers, God does things before we even know anything about it. In other words, God acts independently of you and me. He's not dependent on you. He acts, he works, he moves. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. And Joseph said to them, oh, I know who you are. You're spies. Basically, you're not good men. You're not honest men. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Really? You've never been a dishonest man? Really? You didn't relationally, like, wreck someone? You didn't deceive and destroy someone? And now I've been lying for it for 22 years. You see, it's, this is incredible. So what happens for the next couple of passages is that Joseph starts saying, you're spies. They say, no, we're not. You're spies. No, we're not. You're spies. No, we're not. It's like a comedy, 
comedy routine. So how's the comedy routine going to end? Like, how's this going to end? It ends very brutally. Joseph says to them, okay, here's how we're going to know whether you're spies or not. Uh, bring your supposed younger brother back to me, the most powerful man in the world. What's his name, Benjamin? Yeah, bring him back to me. I want to see him. And just while you're on that adventure, we're going to hold one of you in prison until you do. And Simeon is the lucky one. He's the brother next in line after Reuben. So the brothers go home traumatized, right? They go home traumatized. But when they get home, there's more trauma added upon them because <laughs> Jacob says, where's Simeon? And they tell him the sad tale. And Jacob, exasperated, like, he just can't believe this nightmare's happening again. It's like rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And he goes, uh... That little pharaoh did what? And, and, now, and now he wants what? He wants to see Benjamin? Do you think I'm stupid? Verse 37 of 42, Reuben tries to console his sorrowful father and says, Kill my two sons if I don't bring him back, Benjamin. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he's the only one left. Now you got, Jacob, you got uh, Judah tries to console his dad, verse 8 of chapter 43. And Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. There's the phrase again. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And Joseph changes and says, okay. So the brothers go back to Egypt with Benjamin, and here's how our tale ends for the day. Chapter uh, 43, 26. When Joseph came home, he comes back into his palace. They brought into the house to him the present the brothers did that they had presented, they had with them, and bowed down to him on the ground. Again, this is probably the tenth time. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Do you see this? This might be the 20th time. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And this is so powerful. This is so emotionally charged because, I mean, the text is even saying he looks, he looks, and he looks up his eyes. How old was Benjamin? Maybe a baby when he left? And he sees him, his mother's son, and he goes, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And it just can't, he can't help it. God be gracious to you, my son. God give you hesed. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept. Then he washed his face, came out, controlling himself, he said, serve the food. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that now you would break in upon us all. Speak us all back to life again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you know the message. Here it is, right? Forgive like Joseph. Forgive like Joseph. 
In verse 24 of chapter 42, we didn't read it up here, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, then he turned away. Joseph turned away. This is his first time to see his brothers. This is his first encounter with his brothers. This is the first reunion with his brothers. He turned away from them and wept. Why did he turn away from them and weep? Answer, because he loved them. And he returned to them and spoke to them. Why would he return to them and speak to them? Answer, because he loved them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Why would he do such a thing? Answer, because he loved them. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. Why? Because he loved them. And to replace every man's money in a sack. Why? Because he loved them. And to give them provisions for the journey. Why? Because he loved them. And just in case we missed it, this was done for them. Why? Because Joseph loved his brothers. Do you see the point of forgiveness? Do you see it? Here's the point of forgiveness in this text it's already happened. saying, but wait a minute, wait, wait, when did it happen? How did it happen? (laughs) I mean, where's the technique? Where are the forgiveness steps? Where's the instructions? Where's the commands and imperatives? Where's the exhortations? Forgive like Joseph. The answer is we're not told when Joseph forgave them, we're not told How Joseph forgave them. We're not given any forgiveness steps, any forgiveness techniques, any forgiveness imperatives, any forgiveness instructions, any forgiveness commands, any forgiveness determinations, any forgiveness decisions. It happened. It just happened. In fact, forgiveness shockingly is not even mentioned in this text. It's assumed. So yes, please forgive like Joseph. Let's forgive like Joseph. Let's stop the forgiveness instructions, the forgiveness steps, the forgiveness how-tos. Let's stop it all. Uh, Will McDavid said it this way while reflecting on this text. He said, reconciliation and forgiveness usually work this way. It's not a determination to forgive someone that heals longstanding grudges nor is it an apology in and of itself. The source of forgiveness is love, pure and simple. And once we feel we've received it, forgiveness happens naturally. Like Joseph, we can no longer help ourselves, end quote. Once we feel we've received it, love, pure and simple, we forgive. In other words, love is the oxygen in this text. It's everywhere. And once you breathe it in, you forgive. And we're all smart enough to know, oh, that's my problem. I'm not forgiving 
because I don't breathe it in. Oh, once upon a time ago, I walked away from a congregational meeting. Yes, it was in this church with PTSD. That was a horrible meeting. Uh, the meeting had gone so bad that the campus minister at that time, I'd say, I'm not going to tell you when, I'm not going to tell you who, because there's been one, two, three campus ministers, so you'll have to guess which one. <laughs> but the campus minister called me to check on me, and we were debriefing about the meeting, and this is what he says to me. He says, the reason why so-and-so was such a, you can fill in the blank, uh, is because they are not comforted by the gospel, Jeff. They give no comfort, Jeff, because they receive none. They're uncomfortable people because they're not comforted. Ah. Okay. So this text shows us drastically through the brothers what we're going to see. I'm probably going to like shock you, reorient you to this text. I'm here to tell you that these brothers were loved from beginning to end in this text. They can't see it. They don't receive it. They never experience it. And that's their problem. When love is not our oxygen, what happens to us? Well, what we're going to see in these brothers, when love is not your oxygen, what happens is this. Facing who you are, experiencing who you really are is too traumatizing for you. In other words, these brothers, you're a spy. No, we're not. You're a spy. No, we're not. You're a spy. No, I'm not. It's too traumatizing to admit Oh, my word, yes, I'm a dishonest man. I'm not a good person. It's too traumatizing. But when love is the oxygen, it's your oxygen. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Even as a Christian 50 years in. When love is not our oxygen, here's what happens. We experience hard things in our life. Everyone's going to experience hard things in their life. But when love is not your oxygen and you experience hard things, difficult things, like a pandemic, um, like all the chaos that's going on, uh, hardships and heartaches, what ends up happening is that we see everything when love is not our oxygen. We see everything as an omen of doom. I'm being punished. Verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Right? This is why. When love is not our oxygen, what is our oxygen? What we're going to see from this brother and these brothers in just a second, when love is not our oxygen, the foul air of accusation and condemnation is. The foul air of measuring people, judging people is. The foul air of perfecting people is. The foul air of canceling people is. And Reuben answered, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? You can just see this, man. I can see it. 
did you, but you did not listen. So here's what's happening. He says to his brothers, the reckonings come on us. In other words, Reuben is not comforted by any love in this text. All he feels is guilt, accusation, and condemnation. And that's all he gives to everybody else. This is very important today, y'all. When the church becomes a distributor of accusation and condemnation, Jesus has left the building. So, I'm looking at the camera, because I know many people are going to be watching this. Wokeness, be careful. When love is not our oxygen, what ends up happening is we'll, we get these blessings come into our life. Blessings. But we can't see them and we can't receive them. I mean, watch what happens in, in verse 33. It says, they emptied their sacks. And behold, remember in Hebrew, behold is pay attention. Every man's bundle of money was in his sack. So the money they took to get the food was in there. And not only that, on top of that, more treasure was put in there. And more supplies for them was put in there. And they're just like, oh, no. And notice what happens. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. But the text tells us Joseph ordered his servants to load them up to bless them. Why? Because he loved them. But they can't receive it. They can't see it. It's misinterpreted. It's, how can this happen? In fact, when they go back, they're so preoccupied over what happened. They're so fearful about what happened. When they make their return trip to Egypt, they quickly go to one of Joseph's servants, and they explain the situation. And here is an unchurched Egyptian sharing the love of God to churched brothers. He says, dudes, God's simply blessing you. When love is not our oxygen, one of the other things we do is that we, we say and do a lot of stupid things. Mike, in verse 37, then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. That's just stupid. Kill my two sons? What? I mean, but you know, here's what's so interesting about this text. This text will actually point out that 99.9% of core beliefs that do stupid things is the doctrine of self-effort. Watch this. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Here comes his core belief. Stupidity comes from this core belief. Put him in my hand. I'll bring him back to you. He's very confident in himself. So, Yes, please, let's forgive like Joseph. All of us, forgive like Joseph. How? <laughs> Breathe in the oxygen of God's love for you. Then you'll forgive like Joseph. So at the end of this story, um, we're fast-forwarding. We get to the end. It's chapter 50. We're told the whole point of the text, just in case. Isn't it interesting how God will have 37 to chapter 50 you may or may not get the point. You may or may not get the big idea. We may or may not like, oh, this is what the meaning was about. But you get to 50, he tells you, this is the whole story. This is the point. This is the oxygen in the text. It's very famous. Joseph's the one that says it. In fact, he says it to his brothers. They're freaking out again, and he goes, brothers, 
You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. In other words, sin thinks it wins. Suffering thinks it wins. Shame thinks it wins. Darkness thinks it wins. Tough circumstances think it wins. Pandemics think it wins. Culture wars think they win. And Joseph says, God's love's unbeaten. Breathe it in. It overrides. It works in. It works through. It works around. It works over. It wins. Breathe it in, Joseph. Breathe in the oxygen of the love of God for you. It's all over this text. I mean, if we, um, if we take verse, if we take chapter 50 and we take that lens and put it on and then reread the story, you'll see it everywhere. For instance, at the beginning of the story, Joseph says, uh, Jacob says to his brother, his sons, go down and buy grain for us. Why? That we may live. The story starts with the love of God wanting them to live. God's love moves and overwhelms and controls the hero of the story. Joseph, all his actions are governed by the love of God. All his actions, he breathes in the oxygen of God's love. That's why he does what he does. It's so incredible to listen to scholars on both sides, liberal, conservative, evangelical, whatever, fundamental. doesn't matter what the rank. When everybody gets here, they're all perplexed about why Joseph does what he does. Some say he's being vindictive. He hasn't forgiven them yet. Some say they don't know. I mean, it's amazing. But we're told, if we look carefully at the text, he loves them. He's controlled by the love of God. He breathes in the oxygen of God's love, right? God's love is what Jacob prays for. When they're getting ready to go on their journey, Jacob prays and he says, Oh, God, may your mercy, may your grace go with them when they stand before the man, Pharaoh, or the little Pharaoh. And then you got this, this Egyptian. I love this Egyptian. This unchurched dude has got the love of God. I wonder where he got the love of God. Probably Joseph, right? And he's got these churched people coming to him who have no idea what it's all about. And he's just exasperated. And he, he replies to them, peace, peace. Stop being afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Stop freaking out. And then the passage ends. It started with God's love. It ends with God's love, right? So here you have the brothers. They don't know what's going on. They've been ushered into the palace. They've been ushered in before little Pharaoh. And they are freaking out. And they're thinking... Uh, we're all about to be slaves, and the least thing we're going to get out of this is we're going to serve him. But instead, this little Pharaoh serves them like a brother, not a slave. Listen to the text. 
And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. It's like, what is this strange air? What is this new air we're breathing? Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. So yes, yes, let's forgive like Joseph. Breathe in the love of God for you. Here's how we're going to end. Did you notice that Judah was back? Did you notice that? It's unbelievable. Like, I mean, the last time we saw Judah was 22 years ago, and, and he was not in a good place. He was a spiritual loser. He was a horrible father. He was a chronic liar. He had sexual problems like sleeping with his daughter-in-law. He was high on self-righteousness. He was high on this. He thought he was on this mission from God, which is why he was then going to burn the said daughter-in-law. Right? So that's the last we knew of him. But he shows up again. It's unbelievable. He shows up at a very interesting moment. You have the sorrow of a father for his sons. He's lost Joseph. He's lost Simeon, and now he's about ready, he thinks, to lose Benjamin. And Reuben, the firstborn, sees the sorrow of his father, and he says to him, I offer my two sons to you. Judah sees the sorrow of his father, This gets me every time. It says, I offer myself to you, Dad. I will stand in for Benjamin. Whatever Pharaoh throws at Benjamin, it'll hit me instead. The son you love is safe with me. And then we start remembering, oh, oh, Jesus is a direct descendant of Judah. And the New Testament calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you know what that means? In this story, Judah is telling us something we don't know about Jesus. Because Jesus sees the sorrow of his father, the sorrow his father has for his sons and daughters. And this Jesus says, and he looks at you and he loves the Benjamins of the world. He loves his brothers. He loves his sisters. And Jesus says, okay, Dad, I'll stand in for him. I'll stand in before all the dark powers of sin and death and shame and suffering and guilt and accusation and judgment and condemnation. Father, Your sons and daughters are safe with me.
Forgive like Joseph, right? Breathe in the oxygen of the stand-in love of Jesus for you. Amen.